The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Welcome to Setting the Record Straight, a podcast of Reconstructionist Radio. My name is Jason Garwood, and I am the teaching pastor at Crossing Crown Church in Northern Virginia. And with me today, here in our, I don't know what we call this, a bunker, maybe, (laughs) uh, a bunker 40 miles out of Babylon. Uh, That's what we call D.C. around here. Uh, With me is my friend Jordan Wilson. Hey. Say hello. Hello. Hello and happy Lent. Happy Lent. Yeah, I can confirm that neither of us have any Lent, uh, any uh, ash on the forehead. Nope, no, no ash here. Uh, it is kind of feeling a lot more spring-like in Northern Virginia. We have the trees that are budding, and the air is much warmer. Yeah. Thankfully, <laughs> is is this bunker um, immune to the uh, wiretapping of the federal agents in, in the area? I don't know about okay. that. I haven't been able to confirm. I'll have to check that. The NSA may be, in fact, listening, which they should fear because um, Jesus Jesus is on his throne. Amen. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for having uh, having the time to taking the time to join me on this episode. Uh, we were asked, I think, both of us by some friends of ours from Texas. Mm-hmm. They know who they are uh, to do a podcast on on this issue: the already and not yet. So we're going to talk eschatology for the next, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes or so. And we really want to talk about the issue of the kingdom of God in history, the issue of how many kingdoms there are. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, we're going to talk about that. Jordan's going to fill us in on some things. He's, you know, his uh, studying in that. But really focus on what it means to take Jesus seriously with what he said, too. Right. Uh, right. He said some pretty pointed, pointed things regarding the coming of the kingdom. Um, and so so really, I guess I just want to start by laying out just some terms so we're all on the same page, especially yep. for listeners who may not uh, have a grasp on all of the terms. So that way you know what we are talking about when we say the words that we say. So uh, really, we're going to focus on probably the majority of our focus will be delineating between amillennialism and postmillennialism. Right. Uh, dispensational premillennialism is low-hanging fruit, and uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that maybe a little bit. Uh, we don't have favorable opinions of that, do we? Really? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have favorable opinions of that system, um, especially because of what it's produced, frankly, uh, the fruit that it's produced in our nation. Um but we're going to talk a lot about the millennial theories and some of that eschatological talk. And really, that's kind of where I want to start is just what's a basic definition of eschatology. And I really have to uh, um, go with um, Rush Dooney, who actually I'm pulling it up right now. He talked about eschatology um, being simply history. Uh, is continuously witnessing to endpoints or eschatons. So a lot of times when we talk about eschatology, we think of you know how the the end of the world is going to blow up, nuclear right. holocaust, 
But we shouldn't think of it merely in terms of how the events of the future play out, though that is important. We should think about how these endpoints, that's really what um, eschatos means in Greek, uh, these, um, how, do the, how do those points play out in history? So we're not just talking about future things. Right. We're talking about present things. We're talking about past things. We're talking about the Old Testament saints. We're talking about covenant theology, mm-hmm. um, a whole bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. So eschatology is the study of that. It's the study of history. It's the study of um, how God's kingdom has been uh, since the very beginning, since mm-hmm. God uttered the words, let there be light. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about. When we say eschatology, it's not just future events. Mm-hmm. So... Jordan, give me yeah. in. Um, let's talk about the three main millennial views. Mm-hmm. Give us a quick con- uh, definition of each one. Okay, so the classic uh, view, the classic viewpoints that are out there are the dispensational view, the historic pre-mill view, the amillennial view, and the post-millennial view. Um, really, there are there are only in terms of talking about what the millennium is, two different views: either pre-mill or post-mill. Because everybody either affirms that Christ's, Christ will one day return to set up his kingdom in the future. And in that sense, you are pre-mill. We're, we are, the age that we are living in, is the time period that we are living is prior to Christ establishing his kingdom uh, and establishing his kingdom in the millennium. If you do that, then you are a premillennialist. If, however, you believe that Christ sets up his kingdom uh, at his uh, resurrection and and at Pentecost, and that has been set up, and that we are now uh, living in that age, and that Christ will return following uh, the uh, the conclusion of that age, then you are post-millennial. You, post-millennial, you believe that Jesus will return after the millennium. The uh, Where the differences actually come in don't have a whole lot to do with the naming of the systems, and sometimes it can be sort of a, a semantic problem. Because the differences between amill and post-mill, you know, today most post-mills believe that Jesus is going to return um, or that the present age that we are living in is is concurrent with the inner advent period. Now, not all post-mills believe that, but but today most post-mills do believe that. And today all amills believe that Christ returns after the millennium. So uh, the name Amil and Postmill, as it relates to the millennium, doesn't give us a whole lot of information about what's actually differing between the two systems. When it comes down to it, dispensational premillennialism, uh, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, all have far more in in uh, in common with each other than they do with postmillennialism, because at the end of the day, and I know we're going with this discussion is what does it mean to have the already and not yet? All of the three historic dispensational or historic premillennial, dispensational premillennial, um, and amillennial have a view of the kingdom in practice that it is not fully here realized and um, and in practice uh, meaningful in the physical world that we live in. Now, I'm not saying that there are amills, pre-mills, and dispensationalists who haven't done things in this world and in the physical realm that are not good things for the kingdom. But what I'm saying is that if they're doing that, then they're not being consistent with their eschatology. So hopefully that sort of lays out yeah. the, the four positions. Yes, that's helpful. And I especially want to pick on something that uh, 
pick up on something that you said. Really, historically, amillennialism as a name is more recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it was Rillabarger who said that probably Kuiper was the first to say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the reason there was a distinction between Amil and, and post-mill was because you did have some post-millennialists mm-hmm. who believed in that golden age. So you, you kind of referenced yes. some of that. And, and so there are post-mills who believe there is a thousand years that is the golden age that mm-hmm. is probably far off. Mm-hmm. And then there's some like us, I believe we're yeah. both on the same page. Yeah. And, and Greg Bonson argued that, that the interadvental age between his first coming and his second coming is the millennium. So there are differences in post-millennial eschatology. A yes, bit. there used to be people, the, the debate used to hinge around, is there a literal thousand year golden age period between ah mills and post mills? But that's not the debate anymore. I mean, that, at least that's not the center of the debate anymore. Yeah. The center of the debate now is... What constitutes the success of the Great Commission? What, when the Great Commission is successful, what does that look like? Um, what is the nature of the millennium and the roles of the persons in the Trinity in history leading up to Christ's return? Right. Um, what is the nature of the new heavens and the new earth? Are we in the inaugurated new heavens and the earth? Or is that completely pushed out to the consummation? Um, what is the role of the Christian on earth prior to Christ's return? So Amils tend to emphasize, emphasize what they see as sort of a pilgrim motif in the New Testament, and I think without warrant when you actually look at the the, con, the full context of those passages. But this leads them to see the church is always in exile on the earth, perpetually in escape mode, um, or at least survival mode, and the role of the Christian is mostly to be sort of centered around the so-called spiritual aspects uh, frequently and in practice at the expense of um, activities on the earth. Right. So you are you are leading us into something that's very, very, very crucial because this isn't a matter about charts and timelines uh, because I think we could agree there are there's some relative obscurity. We're, we're not entirely sure exactly. Uh, there's debate over the binding and loosing of Satan at the end of the thousand years. What is that going to look like? You know, uh, Dr. North had some of his opinions on that. Um, even folks like Martin Salbridi today have a different uh, understanding of that. Yeah, following a BB Warfield, Warfield yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the so so it's not just about timelines and charts and the orders of events and mm-hmm. things like that. We're also talking about ethics. Mm-hmm. We're talking about real time, real mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. Uh, another book plug. You'll hear me mention a few books, and 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 Jordan, I'll ask you from if there's any you want to add, maybe a little bit later. But when you think about um, uh, I just lost my train of thought for a second. Sorry. <laughs> I have like four or five different books sitting here. And I, I was actually looking for my Sam Storms book. Uh, uh, what's uh, it was called? Thy Kingdom Come? or uh, I know. I've read the book. Um, it's it's Kingdom something. Kingdom uh, Come, maybe. Kingdom Come. Uh, half my books are still packed. I could not find it. I really wanted it for but this But he's episode. super charitable to Post Mill in that book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. He is. He almost has not a not a single wrong thing to say about post millennialism in that book. No, if you actually read it. Yeah, and a lot of what he says, even uh, I pulled out my Herman Ritterboss book. He's a Dutch theologian. I think he I think he died in two thousand seven. His book, The Coming of the Kingdom. Mm. There's a lot of favorable stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. actually, the book I was thinking about, it came back to me, was Doctor North's book, uh, Millennialism and Social Theory. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so part of the discussion here mm-hmm. is. Uh, 
to pick on our amillennial brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. do you have a cogent mm-hmm. social theory? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is this merely a spiritual, otherworldly, mm-hmm. you know, the church is triumphant in heaven? Mm-hmm. Does that mean anything in the here and the now? Mm-hmm. And frankly, I think uh, Dr. North in that book wipes the floor with amillennial mm-hmm. theologians mm-hmm. because they don't have an answer. So let's um, let's shift gears a little bit. And I, I want to talk through what 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 is the discussion around the already and not yet? What do we mean when we say the kingdom is already here and then it's not yet here? Or uh, that's not yep. what we would say. But right. what what give me some thoughts, Jordan, from your perspective, especially mm-hmm. as we delineate between a post millennial understanding of that versus mm-hmm. a more pessimistic could be pre mill. Yep. I mean, that's got other issues, sure. but. Give me some thoughts on that. Yeah, so um, there are there are passages, prophecies in Scripture which um, clearly show that Christ's kingdom is now here. Uh, if uh, you know the uh, the strong man has uh, been bound and um, his house is being looted, um, if demons are being cast out in my name, I'm paraphrasing here. Know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew ten. Matthew ten. So um, we know that the kingdom is is here now and among us, although pre-mill brothers would, would not see that. Um, so we would say there is 100% and already, um, and that's what post-millennialism and amillennialism w- would affirm. Both post-millennialists and amillennialists also affirm that there is a not yet. What post-millennialists would affirm as the not yet is the consummation of the kingdom. Uh, the postmillennial view, view says that all enemies will to be be defeated um, prior to Christ's return, save death. The last enemy is death, and so we expect a uh, a complete Christianization of the na- of the nations. We expect the nations to be uh, Christianized, and not just that the gospel would go out to all the nations, and then the end will come. This is when we get back to issue of preterism right and smuggling in sort of a non-preteristic view in into the eschatological position not when the uh the gospel has merely gone out to all of the nations but when the nations themselves have been discipled and taught to obey and that the obedience of the nations was always the inheritance that christ was promised and as he sat down at the right hand of the father you go in hebrews Chapter 10, 12 through 13, what is Christ doing? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and is he, what is he doing? He's waiting for the nations to be made his footstool. He said in the Gospels that it is to your advantage that I go um, so that the Helper will come to you, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, acting through the church, uh, is doing the work of not only spreading the gospel in terms of just proclaiming it to all nations, but in actually discipling the nations and teaching them to obey. And so that's with the already, the not yet, um, it's not the, the Amil persuasion would be to limit that to the gospel going out to all of the world and the gospel being told to all of the world, but they, they would stop short of saying that the nations will then need to be fully taught to obey and be discipled. Whereas post-millennialists would go the full mile uh, that the nations do need to be taught and obeyed 
and that they will be discipled. And the only thing that won't happen is um, is for death to be finally defeated, which happens at the resurrection and and the um, consummation of the new creation when the curse is fully and finally uh, taken away. Yeah. So that's a big uh, that's a uh, an important part of how we distinguish between a post-millennial version of that and an amillennial version of that. Um, we're kind of leaving out our pre-mill brothers and sisters because that's a whole other issue with regard to how many comings do we even have, especially when you get into a pre-trib rapture and all these other issues. Uh, that just complicates things. Um, we could spend a little time on, on pre-mill. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Let's, let's do that. Okay, yeah. So, let's, we're an equal opportunity offender. So right, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and certainly we love all of these brothers, but um, we do... Uh, think that this issue of eschatology is important because when the secularists come at us and say, you're, you need to be on the right side of history. If you're not pro LGBT, you know, if you're not pro women's choice, quote unquote, then you're on the wrong side of history. They don't know where history is going. Right. We do. And not only do we know where history is going when Christ returned, Christ promised us and gave us a view of history, a view of history that's victorious and not just, uh, spiritually which mean you know to me non-physically but actual practice so yes um that's why we we really think that this post-millennial view is important for the practicality of it so a couple of things to say about premillennialism. um a couple of arguments that are interesting i actually heard this by uh, a guy named chris goolsby um and i i studied into it and i found i, I don't know how the premills answer this verse um, and this this passage, and it's not just a proof text because there are multiple passages involved in this, but I'll just focus here on two. But essentially, um, in uh, in Second Samuel chapter seven, uh, verse twelve, it reads the following: "And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers," this is speaking of David, "I will set up thy seed after thee." Which, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. So, the promise of the Messiah, Christ. Mm -hmm. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, focus in on that chapter, uh, verse 13. But in chapter, verse 12, it says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. So, David is dead when this um, Messiah when his uh, kingdom kingdom is established is is david dead like it has you know has the general resurrection happened yet no so um it is believed by many that the promise of christ coming to sit on david's throne would be fulfilled when christ comes during the millennial reign, reign. that's sort of the the pre-male view but notice that it says again that when david sleeps with his father and this means that the prophecy could only be fulfilled while David was in the grave, which means between the time David passed away and the resurrection of the dead. Yeah. And then in Acts, it actually explicitly references this. Acts chapter 2, starting verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh neither his flesh did see corruption, that Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, 
being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended unto the heavens, but saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made both the same, made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And um and so that is a very difficult verse yeah. to explain. If 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 you're requiring that Christ to be established, you know, following the general resurrection, which is what the premillennial view yep. requires, then I don't see how that verse can be understood in any rational way. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, you can, now Peter is suddenly having to, you know, right. he's going to have to twist his words around to try and explain. Exactly. Well, Jesus was raised, and he, but he's not yet king. Right. You know, that sort of language, which yeah. the whole point of the beginning of Acts is the assertion of the kingdom of God on earth as it is exactly. in heaven. So exactly. That's and a great yeah. verse. No no more waiting around for some thousand year period will Christ will reign from the earthly throne of David. He reigns from he reigns from the heavenly throne now, and that throne is forever. Hmm. Um do you have you heard the one that um Martin Selbridi talks about? I think you referenced it in your ser in your sermon recently about Christ being both uh, priest and king on yes. his throne. Yes. I mean, we could dive into that. I don't know if, if we have time or not, but that's another interesting one. Yeah, that is a good one. Uh, let's, yeah, do you have it? It's yeah. from Zechariah, correct? Isn't yeah. there a... a yeah, so a, essentially, and this is pointed out by Martin Selbridi, that, um, that Jesus' throne won't be on the earth, and that's what premillennial uh, eschatology dictates. Because, uh, and this is, as Martin Solbridi says, if the scripture cannot be broken, then Christ cannot rule as king from an earthly throne. And this follows because Christ's kingship and Christ's priesthood are tied together and cannot be torn apart. Yeah. As it says in Psalm 10, uh, 110.4, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the key verse that, that makes this clear is Zechariah 6.13 where it says he shall be a priest on his throne. So that's united the kingly office of Christ and the priestly office office of Christ. He shall be a priest and king on his throne. Um, and this is very significant because the scripture says that Christ cannot be priest if he is on earth. Hebrews 8, 4. Yep. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. And audience, if Christ is not a priest then we are all in big trouble, right? Um, if, if Christ's throne were on earth, he would not be a priest. Uh, but that would violate Psalm 110.1 uh, or 110.4. Uh, worse, if he is not a priest, then neither is he a king, yeah. according to Zechariah 6.30. So a couple of just like atomic bombs. I, I, I don't know how premillennialism, I've never heard a good answer to those. Uh, frequently, I hear a lot of the premillennialism focusing on what they see in the early church as the record of the early church. And this is what the early church believe. And that's sort of more the focus that I see in the premillennial argument. You know, of course yeah. there are premillennial arguments from other passages in scripture, but um, yeah. And then yeah. that, that also complicates matters when you think about uh, certain schemes, particularly I think of dispensationalism where Jesus comes back to preside over a temple that he came to abolish. Exactly. So he's reinstitute the animal sacrifices. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's there as a priest with animal sacrifices going on. And I have yet to see any dispensationalist cogently mm -hmm. deal with that in mm -hmm. a way that, you know, actually makes any bit of sense. Yeah. So, 
Good. Those are great. Yep. So, so we, <laughs> we think, uh, dispensationalism and premillennialism is basically low hanging fruit. So we don't want to spend our whole time on it. Right. But those are two very good, good points. So going back to, let's shift into the, the thinking about the already not yet. There is a distinction between postmillennialists would say, and in agreement with amillennialists that the, yeah, the kingdom has come. Yes. Jesus came, he, he died, he rose again, the tomb's empty, he's seated on high, he's seated on David's throne, important to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, David's throne is not in Jerusalem, it's in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in principle, the kingdom of God's already here. Now, the, and the amillennialists would agree with that. Right. The difference, though, comes in with the not yet portion. It is not yet consummated. We agree, mm-hmm. it is not yet consummated. Mm-hmm. The problem comes in... And this is where you have to be careful in reading the parables, especially Ritterboss talks about the parable of the sower. Uh, so many people read the parables and push them off into the future, mm-hmm. and which have, would have made zero sense to the disciples. He's trying to open their ears so they can hear. Yes. Um, he, he says as much. Um, and I, I misspoke earlier. It was Matthew 12 that was the reference to Jesus's, um, the kingdom right. has come. Right. Um, but... So the parables get pushed off into the future, and so they miss the present reality in Jesus' own words, Jesus' own life. He's modeling it. Um, he's the sower, sowing the seed, and it's going to grow. Let's talk a little bit about the parables, especially ones that talk about kingdom growth. So I think of Daniel 2, this, you know, the stone that is not made out of human hands. It strikes the, the statue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it, what it grows, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, premillennialism, Mm -hmm. not to bring up the, our buddies there again, but they have this cataclysmic entrance of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't do that. It starts Mm -hmm. out small. So you Mm -hmm. think of the mustard seed, um, you, you think of the leaven, right? Um, which some argue is evil. The leaven (laughs) is evil, which Jesus makes it very clear. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how you come up with that, but no, um, so give me some thoughts on that. What do you think with regard to the parable? What's the nature of the kingdom? When we talk about it already being here, how how can we say it's already here and be consistent and say, yeah, we understand that it takes time. There's fulfillment, you know, right. when you think of the seeds. Yeah, uh, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, whether it's the Daniel 2 passage about the stone becoming a great mountain, the leaven working its way through the lump, the... Uh, you know, the, the seed and uh, the mustard seed um, turning into a, a great cedar. Everybody is sort of looking for the return of Christ as being right around the corner. So just the return of Christ is because of the imminence doctrine. It's just perpetually right around the corner. And so they think that victory is right around the corner, but they don't have anything to do with that victory. Mm. Whereas the teaching of the, the biblical teaching in the kingdom is that through the Great Commission, the church in the power of the Holy Spirit, is doing the work of that leavening, of that growth. Um, And so to sort of say that this growth is all going to be sudden all at once um, is to deny or to disregard that clear continuing motif of what the nature of the kingdom is, which is progressive growth, just as, as in our own sanctification, we, we, we grow, and uh, from the time that we're a baby Christian, we're immature in the faith, we're, um, we're, we're on a severe milk-only diet, <laughs> um, we, in, in, in 40, 50, 60 years, 
should look almost nothing like what we were when we first started in terms of a maturity, in terms of our growth. But in a two-year period, you couldn't necessarily see the difference. But as you look from the one end of it to the beginning, you can say, wow, what a contrast. But it's incremental growth. There's steps forward. There's a couple steps back, 10 steps forward, four steps back. But it is incrementally growing. And I I just think that is clear in the in the nature of what the Bible teaches of, of what the nature of the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom. The growth of it. Yeah, right. absolutely. So that's um, when you think of the characters, I, I have a buddy um, back in Michigan. He's a friend of mine that we always um, would banter about eschatological things. He's an amillennialist. And, and I would say, well, you don't believe in victory. And he would say, well, yeah, I believe in victory. Jesus comes and wraps it all up, you know, and, <laughs> And so I, I here's what here's a, and I think it was Light, Peter Lightheart, his book The Kingdom and the Power, he made a comment about. Um, I I have to find the quote because it was really really good. Uh, the establishment of the new world mm. order of the kingdom, the new world order of the kingdom, was not a rescue operation, but the beginning of a cosmic construction project. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. basically. And we kind of, um, I, I've been preaching through Hebrews, mm-hmm. uh, and you get to the point where Moses was a servant in the house. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the son over the house. So mm-hmm. Jesus is building this big house, and we are living in a renovated world. It's, it's being renovated. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this ties into, back to what we touched on earlier, some mm-hmm. of the ethics of the mm-hmm. kingdom. Right. When we say already... We mean already. There's mm-hmm. an emphasis on the present mm-hmm. reality of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. But that's not just an idealistic thing, right? right, right. It actually has legs. Right. Um, and so when you read some of the prophecies of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 2, mm-hmm. you know, the mountain of the Lord, you mm-hmm. know, and people will stream in and mm-hmm. um, that's talking about the church, mm-hmm. you know, the temple, mm-hmm. the, the Ezekiel's temple vision of the uh, basically the spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, flowing out of the church, yeah. you know, going into the world, filling up the world. So <laughs> part of the rub, I think, with regard to our amillennial brothers and sisters uh, tends to be um, the, <laughs> I think of some some friends that we, we've talked to about this, you know, even mm-hmm. in the past several years, mm-hmm. trying to help them see mm-hmm. that you don't have to just thrust everything into the future. Right. I, I think that the already not yet paradigm, which mm-hmm. we agree with, with mm-hmm. some nuances, mm-hmm. um, it shouldn't be used as an excuse for Christian retreat. Right. So th- that's the major point that I wanted to make is when we take seriously what Jesus says about the kingdom, the presence of the mm-hmm. kingdom, what mm-hmm. the presence looks like, mm-hmm. uh, it changes. Absolutely. So y- you mentioned, uh, what was it earlier? You were talking about uh, being on the right side of history, right, right. talking with pro-aborts and others, yes. um, yeah. they don't even have a concept of history. Right. It's probably pagan anyway. It's right. circular. And yeah. so they're, stress. They're definitely know. schizophrenic, right? Because right. they have no no bearing on which they don't know where history is going to them. History is going. It's, this world is going to get burned up by the sun and it's all meaningless and we're just going to burn up and die. And it's just yeah, logically ends in nihilism. But they actually do have more... So that's the schizophrenia on one side. The other side of it is that they they're like super interested in the in in the future. They are trying to build a future for humanity with humanity as the savior of humanity, and they're militant about yeah. the future for their children after them, and yeah. uh, almost more so than the church, which is which is sort of sad. We're more looking for uh, this world's going to burn, and we need the escape hatch, and um, 
yeah. while they are inheriting the earth because they're they're they care about um and they care about doing what's necessary in the here and now to build for the future whereas we're trying so i think yeah. with our amil brothers um look if you want to say that you're amillennial because you believe that the that the thousand years is figurative for the intercovenantal period um that's fine i agree with you uh if but if what you mean by that is that you want to adopt a sort of an escapist mindset that this world is not my home i'm just passing through mindset we're just pilgrims here and and that needs to be addressed to the the exile motif and yeah. the supposed exile motif in scripture because there's a lot of presumptions of of what that's referring to um and we could yeah. go into that too if if you want yeah but basically with that with Give the, us a short yeah. yeah what is, what is, what are you referring to i know what you're talking about for our right. listeners who may not know because yeah. in peter and other places a lot of people, especially guys like Michael Horton and mm-hmm. other amillennial two mm-hmm. kingdom, we're going to get into that in a minute. Right? What do they mean by? Well, we're just we're just exiles, and this this world we're just passing through. We're yep. sojourners, like Abraham. Remember? Right. right. What is what is the deal with that? Yeah. So many Christians think that the Bible teaches that New Covenant Christians are spiritual exiles on the earth, and in reality, the Bible teaches the opposite. So. The word exile is used to refer to New Testament saints a total of three times. That's it. Uh, and all three times are contained in the book of First Peter. Yeah. The word is used in First Peter, if you look at the context, to refer to actual physical exiles of the Babylonian exile who never moved back to Jerusalem. Not spiritual or ex- ex- uh, eschatological motifs. Uh, it's not a motif at all. Um, so... If you note the following, uh, what I'm about to say, there's a there's a uh, a use of the word exile, and it and it, it's used to contrast old covenant believers from new covenant believers. So that this is in the book in, of Hebrews, chapter 11, uh, 13 through sixteen, and it's the one where it's talking about you know Abraham having died in the faith, not receiving the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. There's that use of the term exile. Well, that's actually, con- the writer of Hebrews is contrasting Abraham's paradigm as being an exile to the new covenant Christian's paradigm of being a citizen. So if you continue his train of thought ending in Hebrews 12, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion, you new covenant Christian, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels of festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So, in contrast from Abraham being in exile as a new covenant Christian, you have arrived at the city of the living God in the new covenant. Uh, Ephesians 2 makes clear that in the new covenant, we are not exiles, but rather citizens. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So um, we are to be exiles into worldliness or fleshliness. So, uh, you know, if the world is, is preaching a works righteousness, if the world is um, preaching, a, preaching a, um, a, a pursuit of sin, we are exiles to that sort of worldliness because our home in the new covenant is antithetical to that. But um, Christ, we have to remember, he prayed not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be protected from the evil one. We here on earth are representatives uh, of heaven on the earth, and we will inherit the earth, which is the key. Uh, we're light that scatters the darkness. 
were it to be, as we talked about earlier, leaven that works through the whole lump, were it to be salt that pre preserves the good, uh, you know, a, a mustard seed to a, a great cedar. And uh, that's the nature of the kingdom, one where we pray and act towards having what is done in heaven be done on the earth and all in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness yes. to the kingdom of light. The two kingdoms. Yes. Well, hey, <laughs> before we get there, that's a beautiful segue, my friend. Um, what are we? What are people presupposing when they say the church is in exile? What are they saying? That the world belongs to who? They're, they're saying that the world belongs to Satan. Yeah. And where they're getting these passages is also because they're smuggling in an anti-preteristic view of the new of the New Testament. Uh, so in 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 the New Testament, we have a a combining of two ages. In Hebrews eight verses thirteen, it talks about the um, the old covenant having made obsolete and is ready to vanish away. So even in the new covenant, after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, they were still in some sense held up here in this new or in this old covenant that's been made obsolete, but it's still hanging around. The Levitical priesthood is still around in some temple. semblance. The temple yep. is still around in some semblance. The whole order of sacrificial systems and um, and the old way of doing things under the old covenant administration is still lingering around uh, because it had not yet been obliterated by the prophecy that Christ gave us that he would obliterate uh, Jerusalem and wipe away that old heaven and earth, that old order of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about the already not yet. The Amil, post-mill, we agree, right? The, the kingdom is already here. Uh, we have a we differentiate though on the nature of the gospel in the world It's not just a spiritual kingdom it has real world application when men or women are, are brought to christ through through the spirit's regenerative power uh the kingdom then manifests itself in in how we do politics how we do education um all sorts of things it just spills out into everything but then there are these pesky two kingdom people <laughs> that are out there and uh, we have the Escondido branch of that. We have Covenanter. We have different types of uh, people who have these different views about oh, how many kingdoms are there? Is there the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan? Uh, is there the, the one kingdom of Christ? Or are there two kingdoms? Who governs the political sphere? Is it the na natural law? Are we Thomists now? Uh, or does Jesus own that sphere too? Now, you preached a message, which I will um, highly recommend to listeners. You can find it in the Cross and Crown. You can go to our website, or you can find it in our podcast feed. Uh, but you preached a message on one kingdom uh understanding mm -hmm. and, and i thought you did a great job with especially giving a hat tip to some of the more traditional reformed understandings sure. explain that and how does yeah. that how does that tie in well the one word you need to hear again is semantics because with the historical two kingdoms view when they're saying kingdoms they're essentially referring to sphere sovereignty because we with them agree that um, there is separation of institutions. There's the state, there's the church, there's the family. Uh, God uh, sovereignly created those institutions to form different functions and have ju different jurisdictions. And the church should not infringe on the role of the state. And the state shouldn't infringe on the role of the church and vice versa with the family. So that right from the outset, we already agree on. It's just that in the um, 
in the 17th century, in the 16th century, in the 18th century, when they're talking about kingdoms, they're more talking about what those, this, the um, dividing of those institutions. And we fully agree with that. Um, right up from Augustine through Calvin uh, to the um, sort of the Neo-Kyperian tradition of the kingdom view, none of those views had any kind of problem with the concept of Christendom which is the notion that whether it's in the civil realm or the family or the church, Christ should rule over all of those. And all of those institutions should look specifically, not just to nature, but primarily to scripture right. to dictate how they're supposed to be administered. And, um, and that's where the rub is. So, um, you know, being charitable to our uh, covenanter brothers and other, you know, uh, Presbyterian that are sort of, um, tied to sort of more of the traditional view of what the two kingdoms are, sort of want to retain the two kingdoms view. Um, I don't have as much a problem with that view. Uh, what I do have a problem with is more of the modern conception of what is called two kingdoms, which is what, what has been frequently called a radical two kingdoms view, R2K, is that there are two kingdoms, uh, but the kingdom of um, the, the one kingdom is, is, Christ's rule over the church, and that is me mediated primarily through scripture. And the second kingdom is the kingdom that uh, Christ also rules over, but in a different means. So he doesn't rule over, and it's the state, and he doesn't rule over the state with, um, it should not be ruled by uh, appeals to biblical law or biblical precepts or Bible verses. Uh, it should be ruled what they regard as natural law. Mm -hmm. And what you start to see is the uh, lineage that we have today of Christians uh, no longer um, applying biblical principles to government jurisdiction and biblical law. And now today you see what the state of the, the state of the state is. <laughs> it's ugly. Uh, we are far from biblical law. Christians have ceased to be salt and light. The Christians that are involved in politics, have adopted a radical two kingdoms uh, perspective, and they're intentionally not trying to appeal to scripture as the supreme law um, because of that radical two kingdoms view. And it has just done great damage throughout, especially the last, I mean, three or four centuries. You can just see the wreckage of um, the problems that were had under, under slavery with uh, sort of a a radical view of the spirituality of the church mm -hmm. um, and how that uh, affected institution of slavery con continuing um, and even and, and beginning in the first place. Uh, when you're talking about the prevalence of abortion and the church's um, just um, failure to be able to do anything sub substantively about it. Mm -hmm. and um, there's a lot of apathy out there. And, and th to say that the two kingdoms perspective has nothing to do with it is um, just unthinkable. Yeah. It has to have something to do with it, in my view. Yeah. So anyways, <clears throat> the one kingdom view, which I think that is the biblical view, the scriptural view is Christ only has one kingdom. The only other kingdom in scripture is Satan's kingdom. The fundamental antithesis of 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 scripture is the children of the offspring of Satan and the offspring, the seed of the woman who is Christ, Christ versus Satan. That's the fundamental dichotomy in scripture, uh, good versus evil, not a divided two kingdoms of Christ. Um, and so frequently in the new Testament, you'll see, you know, the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of Christ transferred from the kingdom of, 
um, darkness to the kingdom of uh, of uh, God's beloved son. Kingdom of Christ versus kingdom of Satan. That's the dichotomy. And just if we're being scriptural, we, I think it's important that we need to label things in a scriptural way. Two kingdoms is confusing. I don't like it. If you're if you're if you're saying that your doctrine is two kingdoms, you have to go through this long diatribe to show how although there isn't two kingdoms in scripture, this is what I mean. Why don't we just call it one kingdom? Christ has one kingdom. There's separate spheres and institutions uh, in that, and it's fundamentally opposed to Satan's kingdom. Right. In Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdoms of the world have already become the kingdoms of the Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever. So, I mean, if if why stop at two kingdoms? If you're gonna, you know, <laughs> if you're gonna keep going with it, then the kingdom of America, right, right, and and, <laughs> and, and that's the thing because what Joe Boot points out frequently in his discussion on this is that the radical two kingdoms proponents smuggle in a pessimistic eschatology that they're using as their premise for their doctrine mm -hmm. because their frequent line is that the kingdoms of this world will never become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ until the return of Christ. Right. That's their mantra, their starting point. And uh, clearly revelation is talking about a function of what's happened as Christ ascended and inherited the nations, the kingdoms of the world, hallelujah, Messiah have yeah. become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ and Saudi Arabia Brazil, you were saying this in your sermon today, North Korea, they're already, already in a sense, Christian nations. Christ yeah. owns them already. He owns the land. He owns yeah. the people. He owns the institutions. He owns everything already. Just a matter of whether they're acting in obedience yeah. or not. Hence the purpose of the Great Commission. Not just to tell them that there is a Christ, a Messiah, but to command them on the basis of his inheriting authority over those nations, real legal authority, that they are obligated now to obey him and then to teach them how based on his law. Yeah. Yeah. Christ is the lawgiver. The nations are his. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I've pointed this out several Amen. times to people. Look at how the New Testament handles Psalm 2. It is not some future thing. No, no. Like, we're right. not waiting for Jesus to ask for the nations. Right, right. <laughs> he, that's done. He's already asked for them. And he's he's yeah. gotten them in principle. Yeah. And Is there some so confusion what? over whether the rulers of the nations are now obligated and expected, expected now, not later, now, to obey Christ. Yeah. There's an expectation of that that is a function of the new covenant, of yeah. the kingdom that Christ came to establish, the obedience of the nations and the obedience of the rulers of the nations. So if we are, you pointed out, the church's compl complacency regarding, and complicity, I guess you could say too, but with regard to abortion, mm -hmm. you know, so you think about the church repent, mm -hmm. but what about magistrate repent? <laughs> what yeah. about... Yeah, if, they go together. Because we, we say, you know, as post-millennialists, we like to say resistance is futile. But <laughs> if we're not giving them anything to resist, then it isn't to them. It right. doesn't matter, you know. Absolutely. And that's why a lot of this, when we talk about the already and not yet, we really need to make sure we have our, you said the word semantics a couple of times. We got to have those things in place. Mm -hmm. We have to. We have to actually believe what we say we believe yep. about what the New Testament teaches us about the arrival of the Messiah's kingdom. Yeah. Otherwise, what are we even doing here? <laughs> what we're Christian, like, what is this operation we're doing here? Yeah. Is it just words, or do we really mean it? Does yep. it like? I think people think of Christ's lordship and authority in a very abstract way, but literally, he has legal authority over your life, over your family, over the United States of America over the business down the street, like not tangential abstract authority, 
actual authority. Yeah. And that's why we see a new covenant lawsuit brought by the prophets, um, brought in Revelation against any power in the world that would set themselves up and claim that they have authority over the nations? No. Christ, um, or God the Father said to, to Jesus, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And as Greg Bonson said, do you think that Jesus forgot to ask? No, he absolutely did inherited, inherit the nations as we see prophesied in Daniel 7. That happened. Christ actually has authority. And that's the very basis for the gospel. So yeah. when people talk about, oh, politics doesn't isn't about Christianity, you don't mix politics and religion. No, the gospel is inherently political, meaning authority, legal authority is the basis of the gospel. If you are not bringing the legal authority of Christ into your gospel message, you're preaching at best a truncated gospel. And why, why do we have the legal authority? We were talking about this before we started recording. We have been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. That's right. So as Christ regents here on the earth, we're not just manning an embassy of heaven here that we would just want to have a little presence here on the earth till he returns. No, we have a commission. We're an invading army. We're not, um, we're no longer exiled in Babylon. Eschatologically, as you have preached on, we are uh, Joshua and Canaan figuratively, not, not destroying the nations with the sword but discipling them with the sword of the spirit. And we have that commission, as, as you just referenced, based on uh, yeah. actual legal authority. So that's why we have to delineate. We're getting close to 50 minutes now. Uh, we're going to wrap it up. Yeah, it went fast, apparently. Uh, <laughs> that's why we have to delineate with our brothers and sisters in the Amillennial camp that it's inconsistent and borderline dualistic to suggest that Jesus has a spiritual authority. Um, he didn't stop when he said, all authority has been given to me on in heaven, period. Right. You know, <laughs> no, on earth. Yeah. <laughs> so that means something. Um, and I think that's the big difference between the already not yet of the Amil version versus the postmo version. Uh, truthfully, uh, I think the postmo version has teeth, especially when your epistemological self-consciousness brings you to theonomy and understanding God's law mm -hmm. as a tool of dominion, mm -hmm. uh, and and how that practice, uh, how that is practiced um, by churches and families and individuals, and mm -hmm. and then ultimately the state too, mm -hmm. when we uh, um, when we urge the magistrate to kiss the son, mm -hmm. lest he perish. Mm -hmm. So that's really. Um, I guess about I don't, any any final thoughts in, in that realm that you would like to say before we wrap I, I, up? I think there's a couple things. Base, that's the basis of abolition. And we want to talk about abolishing human abortion. The basis of abolition is not just some common law of nations that we can all sort of agree on with the you know seculars and the pagans. No, it's on the authority of Jesus Christ and his kingdom having arrived. And so I think it's important when we're going out there to base our abolition efforts not on sort of trying to share a a common you know view with the unbeliever but to actually bring the gospel in in conjunction with the message uh, because that's where the authority is you we don't have any authority at, of our own at right. all it only comes from christ so that's that's one thing i want to point out second thing i want to point out is just a common objection that you get when you're talking to all millennialists about sort of this um topic and what's the most common objection i, I think we probably it's it's my Jesus said, my kingdom is not yeah. of this world. Yeah. And it's just something that we need to address because it's very easy to address, but it has caused a whole lot of damage because it's been taken out of context. 
Was Jesus saying when he said, my kingdom is not of this world? Was Jesus saying my kingdom is not in this world? Or has anything to do, or has anything to do with this world? No. Jesus was saying, and he goes on to say, and, and, and clearly imply if you, if you read the passage, that although his kingdom is not of this world, meaning it's not of Roman authority, it's not of you know any, any nation's authority, Jewish authority, it's of heavenly authority. And so the foundation of Christ's throne is in heaven, and the rule of Christ in, from heaven does not stop at the pearly gates. Christ does not just rule over heaven today. His rule is everywhere. So when Christ is saying, my kingdom is not of this world, that should make earthly kings who are defying Christ shudder in fear. That shouldn't be something that emboldens them or says, ah, Christ doesn't have anything to do with this world. No, no, his authority is above whatever rinky-dink earthly authority you're trying to push. Yeah, His authority is from the, the, heaven, uh, the throne room of heaven. And so on that basis, nations of the world repent. And that's the basis of the of the Great Commission. Yep. All authority in heaven and just in heaven. No, wait. No. All authority <laughs> in heaven and on earth has been and given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Absolutely. Well, great. Good stuff, man. Thanks yeah. for, for joining I'm me. I'm glad we had this Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It took a few minutes to take its effect. Kind of kind of keep things alive and kicking. Um yeah, thanks, Jordan, for taking the time, and uh, we are so appreciative of you listeners. Uh, for Reconstructionist Radio, make sure you go to the website, download the podcast. We are adding new content all of the time, so uh, as, as, um, you know, as, as you find yourself looking for uh, content, looking to learn more about this, that, and the other, uh, make sure you, you uh, look look that stuff up. We have a lot of stuff on there. And join our Facebook group, too. A lot of good discussion happens mm-hmm. there. Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. So, coming to you from Northern Virginia. Thanks that for that post mill, indeed. Abolish human abortion. Abolish <laughs> government schools. Uh, yeah. Let's just abolish it all. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's abolish everything.com. <laughs> um, thank you for listening. Grace and peace to you. And until next time, we will catch you later. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce 
including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.